What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I've got Michael Pina of SB Nation on the other line, and we're going to dig into a lot of Oklahoma City Thunder, Houston Rockets chatter and talk here as we prepare for Russell Westbrook's first game back in Oklahoma City on Thursday night, which to me is clearly the game of the week. But before we do that, I need to uh, express uh, some news that I'm, I'm very excited about. Um, if you guys haven't seen already on Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else, Andrew Sharp is back in the NBA podcasting game, and I'm going to be joining him on a new podcast. It's called Greatest of All Talk. It's a subscription podcast. There's going to be new episodes every week. If you want to subscribe, go to GOAT, that's G-O-A-T dot supportingcast dot FM, or you can go to our Twitter pages, Instagram pages, and find the links to subscribe from there. Uh, Andrew is back. He's super excited and he's very, very thankful for the thousands of emails that came in last fall when he left this show. So if you're interested in what he's been up to, we recorded a podcast all about that. Uh, and we also did a, you know, extended, uh, you know, kind of a catch up uh, on the NBA season, the biggest storylines of the season. That podcast is already out as well. So you guys can check that out. Again, the website is goat.supportingcast.fm. All right, Michael, without further ado, I think we should dig in on this Russell Westbrook thing because I think we've been in a little bit of a lull since Christmas. You know, we had some awesome Christmas games, especially the uh, the Lakers-Clippers kind of headliner game. But since then, it's been a little bit of a lull. But I think that lull ends on Thursday in Oklahoma City at Chesapeake Energy Arena because Russell Westbrook will be going back there for the first time since his blockbuster trade uh, over the summer for Chris Paul and draft picks. And I'm just curious, like as you circle that game on your calendar, like what do you expect? What's the reception going to be like for Westbrook? Is he going to cry? Are we going to see a, a tear from Westbrook? Is he going to salute the crowd? What are you looking forward to most from that matchup? Well, I think, you know, I would expect Westbrook to just try to dunk on literally every single Thunder employee's face. <laughs> uh, I don't know how he's going to get to do that, but Presti, Donovan, all wait, the wait, assistant wait. So coaches. You, so you think it's a, a negative vibe from Westbrook? You don't think he's going to go back kind of like conquering hero, like, thanks for trading me? Because the Thunder kind of did him a favor, right? No, I mean, it's not really a positive or negative. That's just his his ethos is to slaughter everything in his path. And I mean, at the end of the day, they 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 did trade him, even though it was it was, uh, I think, perfectly fine and mutually beneficial. And there's no hard feelings or anything like that. But I do think, you know, the fans are going to give him a standing ovation. They should, uh, especially after they gave Paul George the reception that they gave him. So uh, no, I think it'll be it'll be a fine atmosphere. It won't be vitriolic or anything like that. But just you know, knowing Westbrook, he's just going to try to murder everybody. That's a great point. So it's not like you know it's um, revenge necessarily. It's just like hey, you know, friends can become enemies uh, with a, a simple blockbuster trade executed by Sam Presti and Daryl Morey. So let's dig into that trade because I was going back and spending some time this weekend thinking about Oklahoma City's uh, summer. And I got to say, Sam Presti is looking like 
probably the biggest winner of the entire summer from a long-term standpoint in terms of how he's setting his organization up. I think it's something like seven first-round picks he got in those two trades, uh, four pick swaps on top of it, not to mention Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who's been the leading scorer for the Thunder so far this season, been a really impressive uh, second-year player, and, and you could argue that he definitely has star potential as well. And then they're just getting max production, all-star level play uh, from Chris Paul uh, on top of things. So I think my first question to you is, as of today, which is January 6th, would the Thunder undo the Russell Westbrook trade if given the option, or would the Houston Rockets undo the Russell Westbrook trade if given the option, or would both teams undo it, or would neither team undo it? Like, who's having regrets from how that thing played out? I don't think necessarily either team is having regrets, but I do think that if the Rockets front office was given a truth serum, they would say that Chris Paul is a better basketball player today than Russell Westbrook is, and he's also a better fit for how they want to play their system. Uh, he's a better complementary piece for James Harden. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, James Harden's opinion is the most important one in the organization arguably. And so if he didn't want to play anymore with Chris Paul, then the trade had to be done. Uh, So, you know, I think that when you look stylistically at everything that Westbrook's done to the team on the floor so far, you know, he's made them one of the gone from one of the slower teams to one of the faster teams. Um, I mean, we'll see how that benefits them in the postseason. Uh, It's kind of just a wait and see situation. But the factor of the matter is they had a ton of success with uh, with Chris Paul. I mean, they nearly won a championship two years ago. If there was not a temperamental dispute between Harden and Chris Paul, then I don't think they would have ever traded him in the first place. And I mean, if you're looking at it from the Oklahoma City Thunder's perspective, yeah, they're thrilled. Uh, they're they're not going back on this. They not only did they get the better player and the one who is. I think, you know, a, a better, more pliable fit with a rebuilding roster, but they also got two first round picks and they're saving over $40 million on Westbrook's inevitable player option. So yeah, they're they're through the moon about this one. You hit it on the head. I think the Thunder would never undo that trade in a million years. James Harden would not undo the trade. I think he's sticking to his guns. If you're the Rockets and you could undo it and you could find a way to get uh, you know, James Harden and Chris Paul marriage counseling, you know, couples counseling. I think you try <laughs> to do that because look, Westbrook, he's more athletic, more explosive. He's got bigger box score stats, but this season alone, Chris Paul is more efficient, higher player efficiency rating, better real plus minus, better win shares, better offensive rating, better defensive rating. And I'm not even going to bring up stuff like true shooting percentage because I'm not even sure Westbrook's above zero at this point. I mean, it's a disaster what Westbrook's (laughs) shooting on on the court. I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but he's 43% from the field, 24% on threes, and he's not getting to the free throw line like he did back in 2016, 2017. He still gets there. There's no question. And he's shooting better uh, on free throws than he did last year. He had a really weird kind of anomaly uh, year last year where he couldn't hit anything. But uh, if you're just saying which player would you rather have on your team for this season, the answer is Chris Paul. If you're saying which player would you rather have going into a playoff series, uh, to me, the answer is Chris Paul. If you're saying who deserves to be on the all-star team this year more this season, the answer is Chris Paul. And that trade was not made with this season in mind at all. 
like you're saying, it was about the future. It was about getting off that final year of Westbrook's uh, number. It was about a fresh start for the organization, uh, you know, kind of pulling the plug on a previous era. Uh, and it was about pocketing those draft picks too. So you had all of those things up together. It's an absolute A-plus victory for Sam Presti. And I would still say that, by the way, even if Chris Paul you know, does wind up having some injury issues down the stretch here for Oklahoma City, and like even if their season was to collapse, it's still an A-plus trade for them. But the fact that he's outplayed Westbrook this year, and the fact that they're 20 and 15 right now, which is just crazy to think about, I think uh, they're only like two wins behind their pace from last year for the entire season, uh, which is nuts when you consider they lost an MVP candidate in Paul George uh, and the guy who their whole organization was built around. I think it's a testament to Presti. It's certainly a testament to Chris Paul. And I'm curious, who else do you think gets credit, Michael? Like, what else is driving uh, this Oklahoma City success? Because I think even their offensive efficiency this year is better than their offensive efficiency was last year, at least from a ranking standpoint. So what what lineups, what combinations are you seeing help drive that? Yeah, thank you for that beautiful setup. I just want to say, you know, their record is 20 and 15. But what is even more miraculous to me, Oklahoma City is four back of the two seed, and they are five games in front of the eight seed. Like, I, I let that marinate for a second. I think that that is one of the craziest stats that I came across in researching <laughs> for this podcast. Um, no, but I mean, if you just look at how they've, they're playing, I, I think Billy Donovan, first of all, deserves uh, coach of the year uh, recognition for the way that he's played the right lineups. He, they, you know, they battled some injuries early on, but he's gone to this uh, the three guard monster with CP and, and SGA and Dennis Schroeder that is just obliterating teams by over 30 points per 100 possessions in the fourth quarter, which is there's really no other three man lineup that is even close to that. The next one that's probably is uh, the next one is is uh, Kawhi Leonard, Lou Williams, and Montres Harrell, which is right behind them in terms of just net point differential. So that three guard lineup, whenever they play them, it does not matter who the other two players on the floor are, whether it's Nerlens Noel, Stephen Adams, uh, Gallinari, Terrence Ferguson, it doesn't matter. They are, they're just destroying people and no one has been able to figure them out. So we'll see if that's sustainable and how that can go. But I don't know. I, I, I give so much credit to Chris Paul beyond that and just how well he's played running the pick and roll in this really slow, and they're not like a fast team. They're, they're, they play extremely slow. They take a lot of mid-range shots. They don't take a lot of threes. They don't get to the rim on offense, but they're still kind of plucking away because everybody can. everybody's in a situation where they're taking the shots that they're most comfortable taking, and they're making them. And you, you just kind of look at CP. You look at Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who, you, as you said, uh, is their leader in scoring, which is pretty wild. And I mean, if I had to pick a player to start a team with, I think Shea is Shea's really high on that list for me. Ooh, really? Um, he's 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 up there. I mean, I went through a bunch of different players uh, for this. In in I mean, he's the guy's twenty one years old, six five. He's averaging about twenty points a game, shooting forty three point five percent on catch and shoot threes. For me personally, he's also just one of the 10 most entertaining guys in the league to me. Like, he doesn't move or shoot or finish like anybody else. Like, there's so many uh, cookie-cutter players in the NBA right now because of the AAU system. And he just doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, he just doesn't move, like, do things on the court like anybody else. So I just love that about him. I love watching him. Yeah, no, 
I mean, he's got some start-stop stuff to his game. He's got a little wobble uh, to his game a little bit. He also had the wingspan, right? I mean, the deflections and just how annoying it is to try to you know pass the ball over him or around him. Um, I love his motor. You know, the Clippers, uh, it seemed like even before the trade, I, I think that they realized last year that, first of all, they loved him. Doc Rivers especially loved Shea and called him a, a future star from very, very early on. And he actually told me in an interview one time, he's like, I'm harder on Shea than basically everybody else on the team because that's what he needs because of, of where he's going, uh, which I thought was uh, you know high, high praise uh, from Doc Rivers. But I also think that they sort of realized like, if they were going to get where they wanted as a franchise, he might have to be a casualty of it. And I think there was a lot of pain, right? I mean, of course, the the trade for Paul George was an exciting moment for the Clippers organization. And I'm sure they would redo it because of, of what it meant for their short-term uh, championship uh, aspirations and hopes, right? But speaking of undoing trades, right? Like all those draft picks, could you still have Shea on this Clippers roster with Kawhi Leonard? What does that team look like two years from now, right? Uh, if if the Clippers still had Gallinari, could they trade him at the deadline uh, for another piece? Now, what do the Clippers look like uh, if they didn't kind of mortgage their future for Paul George? And they'd still be in a pretty good spot too. So uh, I think that just kind of underscores Shea's value of what you're describing in terms of starting a franchise. Like uh, I think in either one of those situations, he looks incredibly valuable uh, and he's got, you know, just massive support from either one of those organizations. Uh, Let me ask you this. You weren't willing to say that the Rockets would undo it, right? Uh, And I think you're right on that because of the Harden factor. Is there a moment though coming up here over the next six months where we would be able to declare that position to just kind of be ludicrous or like indefensible from Houston's standpoint, right? Like what would need to happen for us to look at this Westbrook trade as just, uh, you know, something that they should not have done. They should have tried to, uh, you know, stick it out with, with Harden and Chris Paul. Like if Houston loses in the second round, if they don't get over the hump to win the title, like what is the barometer for a successful Westbrook trade if you're the Rockets? It's the championship, right? I mean, you already got to the conference. Wow. It's got to be. I mean, you already got to the conference finals uh, with CP, and you were competitive against the Golden State Warriors last year in the playoffs in another tough series. Um, I mean, for me, like, I I, I look at it like it it sounds pretty lame, but I'd give this Rockets team a two-year window, before I start really harshly judging the trade from their perspective, before Harden starts to decline a little bit, and I, you know Westbrook is no longer a top twenty player, which I I think he's still a top twenty player. I hope you I, I don't know if you would agree with that. Um, if they lose this year, don't get to the to the finals uh, or win at all. Um, I think we could see Daryl Morey getting extremely aggressive over the summer, trying to move on from Eric Gordon, who he cannot trade this year, moving on from Clint Capella, even P.J. Tucker, uh, in search of a talent upgrade. So if this team falls short uh, and then, you know, Daryl Morey makes aggressive moves and they fall short again, then I am ready to concede that it was a a giant catastrophic mistake. And that might be too long of a leash, but that's just kind of my take on it because from a just... I don't know. Like, do you do you kind of follow where I'm going with that? And and yeah, for sure. I mean, to me, I think I set the bar a little bit lower. I think the bar for them is finals. If they make the finals, and let's say they were to lose to Milwaukee, and Giannis just is the best player, they have a hard time guarding him, right? Or they lose to, I guess, Philly or whoever else you want to throw in from the Eastern Conference side. I think taking that next step as an organization 
you know, finally getting over that hump, capitalizing on the Warriors not being in the picture anymore. I think all those things would actually, you know, justify that trade, at least from their standpoint, right? Now, that doesn't mean it, it couldn't wind up being a losing trade for them down the road when you're paying Westbrook that extra year and those those picks are conveying, those pick swaps are conveying to uh, Oklahoma City and everything else. But it would at least buy them some breathing room and it would make the move defensible. I just don't see them making the finals. Um, and I think that I can't wait to watch what Westbrook has in store on Thursday night because he does understand the moment. I mean, go back to like the the showdowns with Kevin Durant. You know, he'd always have like the goofy, uh, you know, the photographer's vest and, you know, all these other things kind of like, you know, leaning into it, the crazy outfits to try to like hype up the moment. But if you really look at his track record in terms of how well he's performed, like whether it's the playoffs matchups, the last couple of years, uh, you know, he plays hard, but he doesn't necessarily play effectively. And it will be interesting, first of all, to watch how does the Oklahoma City crowd respond to him during the game, his style of play. Like if he makes turnovers, are the Thunder fans going to cheer, you know, or are they going to are they going to laugh at, at the silly turnovers or are they going to uh, just sit there politely because he's sort of been a demigod for 11 seasons? It's going to be just a great uh, scene to dissect and, and to pick apart. Um, you know, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about it from the preseason expectation standpoint uh, on Oklahoma City, I think a lot of people had them outside the playoffs. I had them outside the playoffs. Right now, they're sitting in that seventh seed. They're kind of cruising along, like you're mentioning, you know, Chris Paul settling into that mentorship role, uh, you know, doing a good job of providing whatever an organization needs, um, you know, during kind of a transition period. Um, but I know you were a little bit higher than most people on the Thunder coming into the season. I think you wrote a piece for SB Nation saying, hey, these guys could still be decent. Um, and there was that sentiment out there because they had veteran pieces, uh, whether it's Steven Adams, uh, whether it's Gallinari coming over in the deal. Um, obviously, Chris Paul is kind of at the middle of everything and, and Schroeder too. But what made you higher than most on Oklahoma City? And is it playing out how you expected or has there been some twists to sort of their winning formula that you didn't see coming? No, I mean, I don't I don't really know why I was more high on them than others. I That's just probably my optimistic nature, Ben. Um, but I, I don't, you look at the roster, you have Gallo, who I really like coming off of what could have been an all-star caliber season. Uh, I still think CP is extremely good at basketball and at running a team. And I figured, you know, without Harden there, he would be able to run more pick and roll and be more comfortable with the ball in his hands. I loved what I saw from SGA in his rookie season when he played all 82 games for probably the biggest overachiever in the league last year. I think that's pretty fair to say. So, you know, you add all that up, you have Steven Adams, you have uh, Dennis Schroeder, guys who, you know, I feel like it's not that Russell Westbrook held those players back, but his playing style is so difficult to coexist with that playing with CP, I feel like would would let everybody exhale a little bit on the floor. And it would let Billy Donovan implement a system that is more conducive to accentuating everybody's strengths, as I, as I mentioned earlier, as opposed to just accentuating uh, Russell Westbrook's strengths and kind of letting him sabotage or hijack what you want to do on both ends of the floor. I mean, defensively, like they drop Adams. They don't bring Adams to the to the to the point of attack on pick and rolls anymore. They're not hyper aggressive. They do not attack the offensive glass. They have one of the best transition defenses in the league. Um, they can play small lineups. They can play big lineups. Uh, I just I think when you look at 
how everybody's kind of fit together. I didn't think it would be this it happened like this. I thought that maybe they would jostle outside the frame as a nine seed up to this point, somewhere around there, and then you could justify them making a trade to get into the playoffs. And now, so uh, they've definitely exceeded even my expectations, but now it's like, I think they're they're almost definitely going to make the playoffs, barring uh, an injury to one of their key players. And they have all these assets as well where, you could see them making a win now trade and it's just a really interesting fascinating season for a team that was not supposed to be this good at all yeah that that's something i definitely did not see coming them being in position to actually kind of want to go for it a little bit i'm sure their fan base loves it because you know you're coming into the season you're so deflated right like you're happy to have chris paul because he spent some time there uh when uh, the new orleans franchise had to relocate briefly and so he's a familiar face he's a star player but he isn't the most entertaining, exciting player for the casual fan to watch. You know, he's kind of got the old man game at this point. I love watching him operate in direct traffic, orchestrate, get the most out of his teammates. But just from like a ticket selling standpoint, that's a little bit of a rougher sell than the Westbrook experience where you're just riding this roller coaster night after night. And that's what the, the fan base there had been so uh, accustomed to. Now you've got an organization where, yeah, you can legitimately have these conversations like, should we try to like, you know, package a couple of our picks? We've got seven of them from these two deals, you know, like what's a couple first drop picks and, and go out there and make a move, uh, you know, at the deadline. I think from a fan base standpoint, they've got to be over the moon. At least I would expect that. You know, one thing on the Westbrook kind of black hole effect that you're describing in terms of how his teammates interact with him. I was really high on their acquisition of Schroeder a couple of years ago. I thought that was going to be like a six man of the year type move. Anytime you're getting a starting point guard and you're putting him into that like backup role, uh, you're kind of letting, giving him the keys when he's on the court. I thought it was going to be a natural fit and there was going to be enough oxygen. I thought he was going to be able to kind of play off Westbrook like fairly well. And it really didn't take, you know, and it was one of those cases where like, I think the natural reaction from all of us was to kind of like write off Schroeder a little bit and say, oh, okay, well, maybe some of his stats or some of his performance was just a product of being in the Eastern Conference. He wasn't as good as we expected now that we've seen him in this role. But I think you add Schroeder's name to the list of guys, whether it's, uh, you know, Victor Oladipo, uh, DeMontis Sabonis. I mean, the list kind of goes on and on of people who have not really lived up to their full capabilities while playing with Westbrook. And I guess I'm at the point, it's like an indisputable fact, right? Like a lot of these guys have to compromise so much when they play with Westbrook that they can't actually be who they are as players. It's also kind of a testament to just how great James Harden is that he's still really great with Westbrook on his team. Like the we we look at how defenses are guarding Harden this year that, and in ways that they did not with an aggressiveness that they did were not able to do uh, to deploy last year with CP on the team. I mean, I, you can't really play great basketball, or it's really difficult to play great basketball and seamless basketball with Westbrook because he needs the ball in his hands, and he's still pretty good with the ball in his hands. He can run a high pick and roll and make every read that you need, but when you put him off the ball. Like with Schro- like a player like Schroeder, and you put Westbrook off the ball, like 
like Schroeder really, you know, he's he's incredible at beating his man off the bounce and getting to the rim. But if you're able to help off someone like Westbrook, who's just going to be standing 20 feet from the basket, doing nothing, not moving, that's that makes life more difficult for Schroeder. So I, just fit wise, you add CP, who's a 40 percent three point shooter, who's really smart. He'll screen away. He just moves a little bit like CP has been fine off the ball. He's spent the last two years doing it. He's comfortable with it. So all those guys, whenever they play together, it just it, the basketball is more beautiful. It makes more sense. And I think that's why you're seeing Schroeder have the year that he's having. Yeah. I mean, it's also crazy hard to sustain like an above-average offense in today's NBA game if you don't have that big-time wing talent. Like losing Paul George basically should have decimated their offense. You know what I mean? Because they were already kind of middle of the pack last year with Paul George, and he was incredibly efficient, shooting the ball like crazy, high volume threes, all that stuff, um, and just in a great groove for a lot of last year. And to just take that guy out, and I mean, Gallinari is a nice player, right? But it's a little bit different positionally. And their wings, they've struggled to have the right guys at wings, uh, you know, really since Kevin left in 2016, right? So for them to still operate on that level, it's it's wild. It's definitely uh, credit to their guards and their, their uh, developing chemistry like right off the top. Uh, and then I think also just a positive locker room environment. I mean, these guys seem really happy-go-lucky uh, when they came to LA a few weeks ago. Um, they seemed, you know, upbeat, positive. Uh, you know, I think some of the tension that tends to follow Westbrook around, uh, whether he's initiating it with the media or officials or opponents or just you know, his persona, I do think there is kind of a lifting effect. Everybody, it's not like they're relaxing, you know, but they're just maybe a little bit more comfortable, not quite as on edge as they used to be um, because of his, uh, you know, personality and leadership style. And I think that can be, uh, you know, a winning factor too. I'm going to throw a couple numbers at you here, Michael. These are from my Washington Post newsletter. I wrote on the Thunder and, and Sam Presti this week. Everybody can subscribe. Go find the link on my Twitter page. Last year, they won 49 games. They got the sixth seed in the Western Conference, and they uh, lost in the first round, obviously. Right now, they are on pace for 47 wins and the seventh seed after those trades. Their preseason over-under was 32.5 wins, and they're already at 20 <laughs> and 15 right now. And as you mentioned, like the gap from them towards even like you know a home court seat uh, in the in the Western Conference playoffs is is actually not that far away, right? So. All that to me is wild. And when I look at the Executive of the Year Award, we don't talk about it a lot in the media because the media doesn't vote on it. It's voted on by other executives. And usually it goes to the teams that trade for superstar level players, or it goes to the executive who oversaw like you know a super uh, high regular season win total or a deep playoff run. So guys who have won it recently, it's like Daryl Morey, uh, Bob Myers, R.C. Buford, I think Masai won it back in Denver, and some of those guys have won it multiple times, right? So it's not really like the Coach of the Year Award, which a lot of times goes to like the biggest overachiever or like the biggest surprise coach, right? Like the team nobody really expected to see coming. I'm wondering, does Sam Presti have a case to kind of buck that convention and buck that trend here? Should he be in this Executive of the Year conversation, considering not only those regular season results that I'm describing, but the fact that he got seven first round picks, four pick swaps, and Shea Gilgis Alexander out of this whole thing, like, do, what executive really had a better summer than him? I think people would say Pat Riley had a really good summer. You know, Lawrence Frank, uh, of course, for the Clippers. Rob Polinka, no question about it, for the Lakers in terms of their moves. But 
like if you're just stacking resumes side by side, who did a better job than Sam Presti last summer? Not a lot of people. I wrote this piece before the season to preview the season about how there was kind of a there's a de- the death of long term planning was basically the angle of the of the article. And for it, I talked to. Uh, you know, well over a dozen, a couple dozen uh, front office executives, GMs, assistant GMs, and just about all of them brought up Sam Presti. Like, I, I wouldn't even ask them about the Thunder and the the Paul George trade, and just about all of them brought him up as someone who they are just very jealous of well, can in I, this situation. Can I, uh, yeah, can I pick your brain on that? What they say, or like, what's the sentiment when you're talking to other executives about Presti? Uh, just the fact that Look, I, I think a lot of them are were jealous of the situation where, uh, you know, he brings, he gets Paul George, he has Westbrook. There's a situation where uh, he would have probably kept that all together for at least one more season and kind of wrote it out. But an opportunity presented itself and he maximized it in a way that a lot of GMs are, you know, you're never in that situation where, you know, this player comes to you and says, I want to be traded only to this one team because Kawhi Leonard wants me to go be his teammate. And then that team is willing to give you all these assets and you're able to negotiate one-on-one. So it's, it, he is, uh, I mean, he's an incredibly savvy GM and to, to get SGA, like sometimes you see like trades where a piece is in a deal that makes no sense or, oh, I wish they asked for, for such and such. I mean, if you look at the, the Kawhi Leonard trade with the Spurs and the Raptors, Pirtle um, and DeMar DeRozan basically for Kawhi Leonard. And a lot of people are kind of like, hey, where's OG Ananobi? Where's Pascal Siakam? And so for him to get SGA in the deal, in a deal like that without the Clippers walking away from the table, I thought was also just really impressive and really savvy. So I don't, I mean, yeah, I would put him in the conversation for sure as having one of the best just calendar years as a general manager and as a decision maker. Um, he's, he, I mean, that trade, he knocked it out of the park. It's like the biggest haul in the history of transactions. Yeah, so here's my here's my philosophical take on this, okay? And, and bear with me here. It's going to be a little bit elaborate. I'm really into this idea of total basketball. Basically, submit yourself to the sport. Give your whole heart to the game. It will pay you back. It certainly has in my life um, over the last you know, 20, 25 years uh, following the NBA and just loving the sport, right? My mantra of total basketball prioritizes players who can do it all. Dribble, pass, shoot, defense interchangeable players it, it prioritizes lineups where guys can uh, you know do it on both ends offense defense they can switch they can guard in the post they can guard on the perimeter they can do it all that's what i value uh from the game i actually think the total basketball executive the guy who could do it all as an executive the five tool player uh if you want to refer to him like that uh from an executive standpoint is sam presti we've seen him make gigantic trades We've seen him trade for stars. We've seen him trade stars away. We've seen him make small trades. We've seen him use trade exceptions. We've seen him draft superstar level guys, uh, you know, in the draft, you know, going back, you know, more than a decade. We've seen him find some hits in the middle of the first round with a guy like Steven Adams. Uh, we've seen them cultivate players, uh, you know, role guys uh, out of the G League uh, to fill things out. We've seen him oversee one of the smallest market organizations in the league with sustained success uh, year after year after year. The one thing we haven't seen, of course, uh, is the validating championship 
And we might not see that. I mean, their best shot at that was clearly the Kevin Durant era. And it could be a long time until they get a player as good as Kevin Durant. But if you're just saying, who is the most complete executive? Who's the guy who can do a little bit of everything, depending on what the uh, the situation calls for? Who's the guy who knows how to read the chessboard, knows when to look himself in the mirror and says, we just don't have it. This group isn't good enough. It's time to pull the plug. Uh to me, it's Sam Presti. And you just go back to his greatest hits, man. His greatest hits is deep. It's two discs, okay? Just like Tupac, it's going to run more than 15 <laughs> tracks, okay? And I just need to get that off my chest because I, I feel like, you know, as a national show, we're based on the coasts. Uh, we overlook a lot of teams and a lot of figures in the NBA just naturally based on our location and, and our geography and everything else. He has done one heck of a job, and I think this season is testament to that. I... Just as I was listening to you, the the number one thing that kind of popped into my head was what would Sam Presti look like if he were on the coast and if he were in a big market and if he did have those resources where, you know, remember when Pau Gasol was a free agent and he didn't go to the Oklahoma City Thunder because they didn't have an opera house or, or whatever the hell he, he, that <laughs> excuse was? For sure. So you're saying if you gave him the glitz and glamour in LA, what would it look like? Right, exactly. And the, and the, 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 the open checkbook, the we will go into the repeater tax for you, even if, you know, you're not necessarily contending every single season, like having ownership that wasn't a little bit stingy around the margins. Like, I would love to see what he would look like in a situation like that. And there have been some trades that, uh, you know, I feel like we could go back and argue about the Harden trade for like, uh, the next four hours if we wanted to. But if you look at it from a pro Sam Presti standpoint, he's really principled. He uh, has developed a culture in Oklahoma City that is very admirable from year to year. They play hard. They're competitive. They know what they are and what they want to accomplish every single night. He knows the types of players he wants to draft and trade for. Um, he's very uh, you know, he values high character, which is not something that everybody does around the league. And so, yeah, kudos to him for making the most of, of a situation that is very difficult in a small market and in, in a market that is like Oklahoma City. No doubt. Hey, I think we've uh, we've hit all angles uh, on this story, but I, I think everyone should watch that game. And when you're watching it, don't just focus on Westbrook's comeback. Focus on the other basketball story in that game. And to me, it's actually the better basketball story. And that'd be the Oklahoma City Thunder kind of shocking the world this year uh, and putting all the pieces together. And, uh, you know, you might find yourself, uh, you know, slobbering a little bit over Shea Gilgis-Alexander like Michael does and and appreciating <laughs> and, you know, raising your eyebrows and, and seeing what Chris Paul could do on the basketball court too. All right, Michael, we've got a bunch of awesome questions and comments from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And, you know, we were talking last week, what are the best ways to honor uh, former NBA commissioner David Stern now that he's passed away at age 77? We got some good ideas here, so I'm going to read them. Here it comes. Alistair from Scotland writes, guys, I love the podcast. It gets me through my morning commute. I was reminded on your last episode when you guys discussed honoring David Stern uh, that there's going to be the possibility of a USA versus the world all-star game sometime in the future. This was discussed as an idea on the No Dunks podcast, which is a, an awesome podcast from Skeets, Tass, uh, you know, Trey Kirby, and, and all the rest of those guys. Uh, Lee Ellis, I can't forget my Australian uh, buddy, Lee Ellis. Um, so they want to have a USA versus the world 
All-Star Game. Should they name the game and the trophy in David Stern's honor, given his legacy of supporting international basketball? That's an idea from Alistair in Scotland. What do you think, Michael? I mean, this avoids the idea of it being like a mid-season tournament that just dies. Would doing something around All-Star Weekend or the All-Star Game be the right way to honor David Stern? And we should also mention, by the way, the, the all players in the league are going to be wearing a, a David Stern, uh, you know, black stripe on their jerseys to kind of commemorate his passing. Yeah, that's great. And I've, in our last episode, I, I mentioned that his how he spread the NBA and basketball across the entire world may be his his greatest legacy. So I feel like this is is just a perfect fit and watching all of the international players in the league on the same team like the best guys like Luka, Giannis, Jokic, Embiid I, I, that would just be a lot of fun to see how they would go up against you know LeBron and um, uh, healthy KD and Carl uh, Anthony Towns and just Anthony Davis all the other Harden all the all the American born players so uh, yeah it would be it would be great basketball it would be super fascinating and intriguing to watch but I th- also think that it would it would constantly serve as a reminder to to David Stern's impact and his legacy on the game. I think we need to go bigger. I like this idea a lot. First of all, I love the idea of a USA versus the World All-Star match. They've done that in the Rising Stars. I'm not sure anyone really cares about the Rising Stars game. I've actually they been, don't. Yeah, I know they don't, man. It, have you been to those Rising Stars games? Isn't it like kind of scary how few people show up to that given the level of talent in those games? It's like sometimes there's like 5,000 people in the gym for that. I, I realize it's a made-for-TV event, but... That always just kind of bums me out, man. It's a great way to prep for the no defense policy in the actual All-Star game. If you want to see no defense <laughs> being played with NBA players, check that one out. You know what they need to do? I'm putting this all together. They just need to put Bronny in the Rising Stars game this year. <laughs> Bronny is drawing more people at some of these high school tournaments that the Rising Stars games could draw. I guarantee you they're going to sell out that building of Bronny's in the game. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golver with a message from Mattress Firm. The only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap. And Mattress Firm's President's Day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com mattressfirm.com for the president's day sale all right we got another idea from joe in hamburg new york he writes mr golliver joe we're on a first name basis here okay from now on email me it's ben he writes once you propose the question of what would be a fitting remembrance of david stern for the league to adopt a thought popped into my mind how about a yearly award for the player who is most dedicated to the game Now, I realize that's a vague description, but I think it would mean they are the most professional in terms of preparation, consistency, and work ethic, and that they go beyond the team framework to promote basketball in their communities. It could be voted on by the players or coaches. I think this is an awesome idea by Joe. And just to be clear, there's a teammate uh, of the year award. I think the the media hands out, uh, you know, some sort of... uh, you know, I don't know, if is it a citizenship award as well? I mean, there are things that are kind of in this category, but could you make a new award called the David Stern, uh, you know, dedication award, the most dedicated player award, you know, beef it up there with like, you know, the most improved player and, and rookie of the year and, and kind of elevate it to that level where 
uh, it's being voted on in that kind of same spirit, or maybe you have a short list of candidates that teams can nominate. Um, what do you think, Michael? I think it's the best one I've heard yet. This is great. I mean, every award is basically subjective, like most improved uh, MVP. Like we argue about what those awards mean anyway. So most dedicated player or just who is most dedicated to the game, I I feel like it wouldn't be that confusing. And for the record, I I would nominate Kemba Walker, who... plays tries to play in every game which i feel like you can't be a load management casualty and win this award that's just <laughs> oh, it's for just sure <laughs> well we know how david stern felt about load management Kawhi leonard is never winning the dedication david stern award exactly so it's someone who who genuinely wants to play every night regardless of how they're feeling who does work in the community whose teammates love them opponents love them people want to play with them uh there's a lot of guys who come to my mind. I feel like Kemba Walker has been personified in it in that he's been voted as the best teammate, I think, twice in the last three years or something like that. Um, so that's the type of player who would win this award. And I, I, I do think it's a great idea, too. I, that did not come to mind when I was thinking of ways to... Uh, to honor David Stern. So this is a great call by Joe. I think they need to do it. There's guys in the NBA league office who listen to this podcast. Guys, take your notes out. Bring this one to your boss. Your boss is going to like this idea. The one reason why I think that we should vote on it publicly and, and elevate it to the same level of the other awards is because, I mean, the awards discussion has become such a big thing, right? You know, people check in at quarterly at the halfway point. Um, there's a lots of discussion down the stretch in terms of, you know, every writer is going to release their picks and, and everything like that. To have people debate such a positive topic for the league of who's dedicated, who's spreading the game in their community, who's doing the types of things that you're describing with Kemba Walker, because you know that case you made for him, there's 20 guys around the league who are doing it the right way who deserve some recognition for that too, right? I mean, I'm sure Blazers fans would put Damian Lillard into that mix um, and you can go kind of like right down the list, right? I think um, it would be awesome just to see that kind of discourse. And from the NBA's uh, standpoint, it's like brilliant PR, you know, it's like, perfect kind of like uh cotton candy pr so from that from that i think it's just a kind of a win-win-win all around okay we've got a couple other questions here that we should get through uh remy writes if someone uh told you at the start of 2010 that the toronto raptors would be nba champions in the coming decade you would probably have laughed and not taken this person seriously remy i could not agree more i think i made that point recently when i was discussing Masai Ujiri's executive of the decade credentials, uh, 100%. He turned the whole organization around during his time period. Remy continues, but looking at the next decade, my question is this, which team in your view was the most unlikely to become an NBA champion and what ne- would need to happen to make a championship for this team feasible? In other words, like what's the next blueprint uh, for the team to be the Toronto Raptors or the next Toronto Raptors? So Michael, what say you? My team here is the Washington Wizards. Wow. And here's how I'm going to lay it out. So Ernie, Un- Ernie Grunfeld is, is gone. He you know, resided over the team for years and years and years and made a lot of really tricky, difficult, awful decisions. Uh, right now, over the past, I guess, however long he's been gone, sensible decisions are being made by Tommy Shepard, who, who replaced Ernie Grunfeld in that role. Uh, you know, you, you make signings like the Davis Bertan signing. You get Mo Wagner and Isaac Bonga for a million dollars from the Los Angeles Lakers because you insert yourself in the Anthony Davis trade. Um, 
the reason why I have them here also, I think the most important reason is they have Bradley Beal on their team. He's one of the five best guards in the league. He's 26 years old. He wants to be there. He's under contract. Uh, so if you're charting a path to the championship, I mean, obviously it looks it, it looks almost impossible from where we are because they're operating with no cap space for the foreseeable future. They have 11 wins right now. Uh, but like hypothetically, let's say you know they get John Wall back next season. He he somehow coming off the Achilles looks like an above average starting point guard. You have him. You have Beal. Uh, and then, you know, someone like Carl Anthony Towns suddenly decides he wants to be more engaged in our country's political scene, and he demands a trade to the Washington Wizards in D.C. Um, the Wizards have enough assets to make that trade, uh, make a trade like that possible, and suddenly you have a formidable big three, and who knows what happens from there. So that's like, I could see something, you know, what I just said is probably a 0.1% chance of happening, but... That's what I would have also said at the beginning of the decade with the Toronto Raptors. So once you already have the talent like Beal, you know, anything could happen in the NBA. Yeah, I was going to say, like, if we're ranking all the teams one to 30, I'm not sure I would have them last because of the Beal factor, right? Like, we've seen that they can put together a very efficient offense this season. Now, I mean, they're kind of, you know, cutting corners would be the polite way to put it (laughs) on on defense, right? I mean, it's a little bit of a... Uh, a pyramid scheme that they're running out there, right? But uh, Or a Ponzi scheme is, is probably the, the better way to put it in terms of how they're just completely ignoring the defensive side to like juice their offense, right? But they've shown the ability to be elite at something, which helps. When I'm looking at some of these other teams that I would rank below them, it would be teams like Phoenix, Sacramento, the New York Knicks, uh, you know, probably uh, I would throw the Bulls in there at this point, the Charlotte Hornets, the Orlando Magic, like all of those teams to me have a lower shot than the Wizards. And, I, you know, I hate giving the Wizards credit, but I'll give them I'll give them credit here. I think they actually have a better shot than a lot of those teams. Right. So when I was attacking this question, I was trying to think of like, what is the most absurd story that I could come up with? Like, which team is the least likely to do it? So it would be just the craziest turnaround if they actually did it and then like what would be the narrative uh excitement around it and i i basically boiled it down to two okay the new york knicks winning the title would be very annoying because james dolan would get to have like the most obnoxious victory parade in the history of the nba right but let's say he did throw all the gold bars at masai ujiri masai would be able to turn the knicks around just like he did the raptors there's really no question in my mind I think a fundamental part of that turnaround would be Giannis going to New York. And I know you've already said he's going to resign the Supermax. I understand that. Uh, you know, I'm not rooting for Giannis to go anywhere. But if we're suspending reality and we're just saying, like, what would it be like to live in a world in which Giannis was the face of the New York Knicks, uh, a newly competent New York Knicks? I mean, the jersey sales would be just absolutely out of control. The coverage, the saturation coverage would be maybe even too much for guys like in Giannis Inc. like me to stomach because it would just be jammed down our throat. I would love it. Um, ben, Ben, can I cut you off for two seconds with a question? Please. Do you think Giannis would go, would be a villain at that point? Giannis will never be a villain and not in my heart. I've seen these pregame videos where he's like beating up on Robin Lopez and he's doing all of the, the wrestling stuff. And I've never followed wrestling because it's not real. You know, I'm not sure if people know that wrestling is not real. So I've, I've never Wait. been interested in that. 
Um, I'm a fact-based person, a reality-based person. Um, but even when he tries to play the villain role in their little pregame wrestling skits, it doesn't work. He's just too perfect as the white hat type of guy. So <laughs> look, I think in this ideal scenario, he leads Milwaukee to a title. Then he jumps ship to the Knicks and he becomes this global icon, right? In that scenario, he could deliver a title to James Dolan. And I think he's such a hero that even people wouldn't hold that against him. So that's my one scenario. Now, my other scenario, improbable, would be the Charlotte Hornets, right? And for years, guys who just swear by Michael Jordan, like myself, have just had to pretend that he's not arguably the worst owner in the league. I mean, he's definitely bottom five, right? In, in terms of his building strategy, who he hires as his executives, the fact that he has like half his family on his payroll. Um, you know, it's nothing about how anything's gone in Charlotte has gone pretty well. And frankly, everything that I said about Sam Presti being the total basketball GM is the opposite for Michael Jordan being the total basketball owner. He's pretty much the opposite of everything I would want from an owner, at least so far. So if he did manage to turn it around, let's just say he finally won the number one pick. He got the right player. They were able to make a couple of shrewd moves. Maybe he hires the right executive and it actually works. And they were to win a title. And now he would have this crowning achievement, you know, 6-0 and in the finals, maybe 1-0 and in the finals, as an owner, something that LeBron hasn't done yet, it could just elevate his GOAT status to an even higher level. It's even crazy to discuss or throw out as a hypothetical because we would never picture this happening. We never even had to prepare those kinds of stories as writers to write because he's never even come close, right? I mean, they're not even winning playoff series, let alone the whole thing. But imagine if by 2030, MJ had a ring as an owner, what kind of a world we'd be living in. Yeah. So, I mean, I approach this question from what is the most realistic terrible team that could win it all over the next 10 years, not what is utterly impossible, which is the two situations <laughs> that you've outlined. So we came at it from two different angles. Look, there's no rules here, okay? You can spin the questions however you want to spin them. Uh, Remy, I hope that gives you some food for thought to chew on. Uh, I'm certainly uh, excited now at the possibilities of both Michael Jordan winning a title as an owner and Giannis leading the Knicks to a title. Um, neither will ever happen, as Michael's described, probably. Um, all right, moving on. We got a question from my guy, Diptanu. He's in the Bay Area. He's awesome. He's a big-time open floor fan. He writes, I'm watching this Milwaukee Bucks game, and I'm falling asleep. Giannis and company are effortlessly scoring points against Minnesota. There's no real tension or narrative driving the seasons for either one of these teams. Dip to new, man. Come on, bro. A little half empty there. He goes on. Kevin Durant is not playing this year. The Warriors are not good. Everyone was all about the league. Everyone was all about saying how the league was finally balanced, but it's not really balanced. It's still super top heavy in both conferences. And I don't think the season has been very entertaining. I used to tune into every single Warriors game to see KD, Steph, and Klay Thompson play. Uh, and it was entertaining with a lot of tension, even though we knew the Warriors were the favorites. My question to you guys is, has this season been boring? And what would you say is the most boring NBA season in recent memory? Now, dip to new, bro. I'm going to call you out right here. You're my friend, and I say this as a friend. Uh, it's a first world problem, bro. Okay, if you're complaining about the <laughs> NBA not being entertaining enough because it's not living up to the standard of Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Steve Kerr, Bob Myers, and Joe Lacob. Uh, that's a you problem, okay? Because that is not the normal NBA experience. That was a one out of one, 
series of events that kind of catapulted the Warriors to a level that, frankly, I never saw coming. I don't think the NBA ever saw coming. Certainly, LeBron James didn't see it coming. That was a wild experience. It's natural for there to be a hangover effect in the first season uh, after that ended. And for somebody you know who's so close geographically to that team, it's natural that you're going to be impacted, I think, uh, even more than anybody. And the fact that you're a KD stan like myself makes you impacted more than everyone because we don't even get to see KD in his new spot in Brooklyn until next season. All of that being said, that does not equate to a boring season around the league. And I don't think we're having a boring season. I think both the LA teams are super compelling. I think even the Clippers' recent drama is pretty interesting. I think what James Harden's done and the tension there with Russell Westbrook is a fascinating story. I think the Bucks are more interesting than you give them credit for. I realize uh, they are kind of boring by design in terms of how they conduct themselves in the media, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily write them off as boring. I think Boston and Miami have both been more entertaining and better teams than I expected. So I'm not going to go all the way and say, oh, you know, it's it's better than the Warriors super team era because there's more teams who have a chance to win a title. I don't feel that way. I, the Warriors super team stuff being top heavy, that didn't bother me from the league perspective. I thought it was an excellent story for everybody to kind of rally around. But I do think there are a lot of compelling stories. None of them individually is as compelling as Golden State was last year. But collectively, there's still a lot going on. Michael, I throw it to you. Are you bored like my guy Diptanu? I I love Diptanu's just be like shamelessly being an angry Warriors fan and then saying that the whole league is boring because I I love that. That's hilarious. Um, shout out to Diptanu. Uh, I just want to say wow. really quickly. That, Sounds like that you want I, him to check his Warriors privilege <laughs> at the door. Go for it, Michael. Call him out. Well, first of all, I I watched that Bucks Timberwolves game and it was awesome. It went down to the wire. It was decided in the last like 10 seconds, and it featured a near brawl after Jarrett Culver threw down a ridiculous dunk on Robin Lopez. So that game alone was, I, that's not really a, a game you would fall asleep to. Um, I, I do agree that not having some of the, the key stars uh, available at times is, it, it, it hurts the game a little bit. I mean, I live in Brooklyn, not being able to watch Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving in person, which I thought I was going to at least be able to watch one of them this season, has been a bummer. Um, but no, I mean, heading into the heading into this season, I thought that, um, well, I, I entered the season with an excitement that I thought at least 10 teams could legitimately win the championship. I don't think that anymore after where we are in the regular season. But I do still feel like there are a bunch of teams. Like I, it's not decided. the The end game of the season isn't decided as it was. I think for the past five, four or five years, um, in the same way. So I'm. I, I still think that the league is wildly entertaining, and I'm biased because I cover it for a living and I love it so much. But uh, but no, I can't just because the Warriors are not the Warriors anymore. I'm not really. That doesn't really bother me in terms of the NBA as an entertainment product. Diptanu, you're going to feel better when Kevin Durant's back. Michael's right on that. You're going to feel better once Steph Curry's back next season. Uh, there's no question there. But I also think don't live in the past, bro. It's all about the future. You're going to leave the Warriors super team in 2019. All that thought and all that negativity that's emanating from their demise, you're going to leave that in 2019 and you're going to start fresh in 2020. I encourage you to do that. All right, a couple more questions quickly. Joe writes, why does everyone crap on Hassan Whiteside? This is a genuine question. You always hear about him as being a must-trade guy, 
uh, and his huge salary is kind of holding back the Blazers. But I have to say, I kind of like him. I don't watch a huge number of Portland games, but when I do, I basically always think the same things in this order. I really hope Dame wins a championship eventually, like Dirk did in Dallas. Number two, CJ McCollum is way better one-on-one than I remember. Number three, Hassan Whiteside seems like an ideal big man for a team with two high-scoring guards. Number four, Scal Labissier seems like he's better than his numbers and minutes suggest. A sneaky prediction that he could be an all-star reserve in a couple of years. Very ambitious from you, Joe, outside the box. (laughs) Not sure I agree all the way there, but I do think Scal is an underrated player at this point and a nice find for Portland's front office. So he concludes by saying, this is a sincere question about Whiteside. Ben, I know you're a Portland guy. So I thought you might know, why does everybody hate on this guy? It's a good question, Joe. I think um, he can look good in certain games like you're describing. He can put up big numbers. He can even sometimes look dominant, you know, eight, nine blocks a game. Feels like he's in charge of things. But when you're describing, is he the ideal big man to pair with two high scoring guards? On that one, it's not, not quite true, especially in the modern game. You want to have mobile big men. Uh, who can move around uh, defensively, switch, step out, cover lots of ground defensively. That's not his strength. You want to have guys who can shoot three-pointers to give space to your high-scoring guards. That's not really his strength. And you also want to have big men that can maybe playmake a little bit, uh, you know, passing the ball. And that's not really his strength either. And I think that, you know, some of his other weaknesses in terms of playing with guards, uh, he's kind of a inconsistent screen setter. He doesn't really lay the wood to people. He doesn't make those screens stick. And then he doesn't always roll to the basket hard. Now, some nights he does. And those are the nights you're probably watching when you're feeling like this guy's awesome. He's a dominant player. When he does that, it pays dividends. But his motor has always been pretty inconsistent. um, and, And he's just not the most reliable player. I think there's also, you know, he's got a tendency to be a little bit of a black hole. And that's putting it kindly. You know, the ball goes in, doesn't always necessarily come out. Um, and I think that that's another problem too. When you're dealing with some super high efficiency guards like they have, um, that's not always what you want. I mean, there's turnover problems. There's just possessions breaking down, and that's been an issue. I think Portland's biggest problem this season, though, defensively, um, you know, they really haven't beaten a lot of good teams this year. And I think a big problem is he's just not that versatile of a defensive player. Even when he does have kind of dominant defensive nights against poor offenses where he can kind of hang out in the paint, block shots, clear the glass, uh, and do what he does best, uh, it looks really impressive. But he's not able to scale that up against the best teams, the best competition. And I think that's why a lot of people grow frustrated with him. Uh, he's just kind of a player who who doesn't take your team uh, to a super high level. And I think that's why you're seeing Portland struggling. I wouldn't pin it all on him, though. Uh, they've had a lot of injury issues. I think Scal is the most recent one, but Rodney Hood going down, uh, you know, Zach Collins and some other guys as well. Uh, it's kind of a mash unit up there in Portland right now. And I think in fairness to him, he is the easiest scapegoat. Uh, I think there's no question about that on that roster. He's the guy who's going to catch all the blame. And I think you've, you've uh, identified that correctly. If I were writing a list of players who explicitly did things on the court that indicate they care more about themselves than their team, uh, Whiteside would probably be number one for me. Ooh, uh, little hate, little haterade. Okay, so what are the things that he does that that bother you? I mean, it's I, on Sunday night the Miami Heat played the Portland Trailblazers, and it was it was I think it was Whiteside's first game in Miami, if I'm not mistaken. 
uh, since he was traded. Oh, and yeah. Didn't they retire his jersey? Or they had like a seven-minute-long video montage. They were so happy to have him back, right? They were, yeah, they, they, right <laughs> next to Dan Marino and Michael Jordan's jersey up in the rafters no, there. You know what's great? Eric Spolster is like the most buttoned-up coach of all time. Does he have more subliminal shots at Whiteside than any other coach, the player that we've ever heard? Well, that's because the whole time he was there, Whiteside was complaining about minutes, playing, complaining about, you know, he doesn't want to go come off the bench, complaining about effort uh, or, or not exerting the right amount of effort. And that organization is very no-nonsense, as we know with the James Johnson situation, the Dion Waiters situation. So it was obviously a terrible cultural fit. But it, it was so funny watching that game because... Uh, the Heat just attacked Whiteside on like every single possession he was in the game with the high pick and roll. And Goran Dragic had one of his best games of the season because of it. And you could just tell like the the one, one of the things Whiteside does that's really infuriating is he just chases every single block opportunity. So Dragic would just bait him out pump fake, get him in the air, and then pass to his man over and over and over again. And there was really no adjustment by Whiteside. There was no learning from his mistakes. Uh, Portland's half-court defense is so much better this season when he's off the floor, and it's plays like that that really explain and illustrate why. And also another thing about him that I didn't really realize, but they they basically don't allow Whiteside to play without Damian Lillard also on the floor which is interesting for a lot of different reasons and uh, kind of a testament to, I, I would imagine that Dame was a, a vocal uh, proponent for getting Whiteside to Portland. And so, you know, the coaching staff is like, he's here, you get to play with him. Um, yeah, uh, you've pointed out a lot of the, the drawbacks. The discipline issue is for sure uh, right up there with the mobility and the adjustments thing is is something that would prove critical in playoff series. You know, if you get him against the wrong team, you can just exploit it over and over and over again. Um, I'm not sure how much trade value he's really going to have for them. I know they're they're hoping that he can go out there. You know, a lot of Blazers fans want the Whiteside contract to be the piece that helps them get maybe like a third star. And you know, if they're able to kind of like package it with picks or whatever else, we'll see. You know, I, I mean, just remember how much Portland gave up to get him, and, and that's a good barometer for what they're going to be able to get in return. And when you're talking about like Myers Leonard and, you know, not much else in that return package for Whiteside over the summer, uh, it's probably best to hold your horses. Our last email is from Peter in Poland. He writes, hi, Ben and Michael, happy 2020. I am not a New Year's resolution person, but this year is a little bit different. My wife got me a basketball for Christmas and I decided to work on my game in 2020. I must admit that I'm a complete newbie when it comes to playing the sport. I took the path of one of the Open Floor Glow members named Joe, who works on his shot while listening to Open Floor. And Michael, you'll remember, people wanted us to just randomly say, nice shot, Joe, to encourage him because he's always out there getting buckets while he listens to us in his headphones. Uh, Peter continues, I was stunned by the results of my first 2020 practice. My shots were dropping. My awkward offhand dribble was not that awkward. And all in all, I feel like I might be able to make the 2020 three NBA all-star game riding the momentum. I took the ball and went outside the next day. Obviously I didn't have any open floor to listen to, and it was a complete disaster. I kept on bouncing the ball off my foot, shooting air balls left and right and completed the whole experience with an awful wedgie. I know the sample size is small, but I happen to believe that open floor makes you a better basketball player. Now, Michael, 
Did you ever think when you joined this show that you would be inspiring Polish basketball dominance and that you would be personally uh, responsible for Peter stepping his game up to new levels? How does it feel? How validating, gratifying is that? After listening to you read that email, I mean, that's the apex of me as a human being right there. So <laughs> your greatest accomplishment? <laughs> I, can't, I can't get any better than that, no. It's like you meet Neil Armstrong, you're like, wow, how is the moon? That sounds awesome. Well, guess what? I inspired Peter to be able to make a couple jump shots in Poland. Look, Peter, awesome email. And I've just discussed my favorite ways that people listen to the podcast before. I think, you know, commuting, it's absolutely essential. Uh, you know, doing chores is another good one where you can really focus on what we're saying. The basketball shooting one, though, where you're getting into that meditative trance, you're trying to knock down as many buckets in a row and you're being inspired by us. That warms my heart. I talked about the importance of total basketball earlier, Michael. That is the total basketball experience. Peter, I only hope that you're out there with shooting sleeves, uh, leg wraps, tights, official NBA jersey, and official NBA shorts to complete the whole experience. If so, get your girlfriend uh, to send us some pictures of that. I cannot wait to see it. All right, guys, we've reached the end of another episode. Uh, so thanks so much for all the emails. Keep them coming. Openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com we'll be back later this week with another episode check us out on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find our page scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word i'm on instagram at ben.goliver i'm on twitter at ben goliver michael is on both instagram and twitter at michael v as in victor and guys, don't forget, Andrew Sharp is back with a new podcast. It's subscription only. Check it out. It's called Greatest of All Talk. I'm on there with him. We're going to be putting out one episode every week. We've already taped a couple for this week. They are out there ready to be downloaded. Go to GOAT, that's G-O-A-T, dot supportingcast.fm. Hey, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk to you soon, Ben. <laughs>